We're going to be reading Genesis chapter 13, which is on page 9 of the Red Pew Bibles. And you're going to read the uh, full chapter, starting at verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where, he, where his tent had been earlier and where he had built, first built an altar. There, Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarrelling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. It's not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right, and if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zor. This was before the land the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Lift your eyes from where you are now, where you are, and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of memory at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Amen. Before I start to work through this passage, there's a announcement that Scott might have just forgot. There's a afternoon for book lovers that Joanne's organising this with, I think, Catherine Dowling, and it's for ladies to go if they're keen on looking at um, books and talking about books and things with each other, Christian books, I think, normally. Uh, so see Joanne about that one at the end of the service. Is that okay, Scott? It's too late now, if it isn't. <laughs> Okay, uh, I'll pray and then we'll think about this passage. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together uh, to think about this part of Genesis and we pray that you'd help us to understand uh, what's being explained here and, and how it relates to us through relating to Jesus. And we pray for this in his name. Amen. Well, have you noticed that many journeys can have their ups and downs before one reaches the right kind of destination. 
I recently read about a journey of a Dutch family in Indonesia. Uh, the family recorded their diary of survival of one of the most powerful volcanic explosions that have ever been recorded. That was the eruption of Mount Krakatoa back in 1883. Apparently this little family was living in a village off the coast of Sumatra, a place called Kedimbang. But the rumblings of this uh, volcano Krakatoa offshore started to increase the surge of waves into their port. And the mother of the family decided that they should move inland uh, to a little hut that they had in the forest. It's interesting to notice that the mother decides to move the family before the volcano goes off. The father was asleep at the wheel. Anyway, at 8pm that evening, a small tsunami struck the coastal house and demolished the family's house staircase. So they decided it was time to speed up on the packing, ready to, to get out of there. And as they uh, headed out of Kettenbang, about 3,000 of the villagers decided to join them uh, on their journey. Well, it took them about three and a half hours to get to their hut in the forest. And to get there, they had a, a, a challenging journey with ups and downs. They had to trudge through ankle deep mud. They had to carry their kids along the way and head up the steep slopes to the forest retreat. When they arrived in, they went inside quickly to avoid the thick downpour of ash and pumice which fell through the night. Uh, unfortunately, there was only enough room for the family to get into the hut. The other 3,000 had to, well, you know, do the best they could. Um, but they were glad they made it to the hut because they'd got news that the, the little village got completely washed away. But suddenly, at about uh, 10 a.m. in the morning, on the 27th of August, 1883, there was a final eruption from this massive volcano, Krakatoa, and the shockwaves travelled around the world. Um, in fact, the, the size of the explosion was so big that it blew 16 cubic kilometres of volcano into the sky. And the intensity of the blast was equivalent to 10,000 Hiroshima-style uh, bombs, atomic bombs. So this was this is um, 100 megatons of explosive. Anyway, the the important thing here is that although they've gone through this journey to get to the family hut, the, the great news was that the pyroclastic flow that that surged uh, from the volcano and surged towards their place, it had actually just drained itself of the total intensity by the time it reached the front door of their little building. And so they were able to keep the door shut. They had a whole lot of ash and pumice that they were inundated with, uh, but they managed to survive. And so they could go out the door. What once was a green forest was now a grey world devoid of any life, but they'd survived. Uh, they'd, they'd survived and made it on account of their journey. Well, it wouldn't have been much fun, would it, uh, thinking about packing up all your worldly belongings, uh, taking a exhausting walk up the hill, carrying kids, trekking through mud. But the, the net result, the safety at the destination, made it all worthwhile. All those ups and downs were worth it in the end. Now, the reason why I'm raising this story is because we see uh, something of another journey in the Bible here. We see Abraham's journey, and he receives, he's uh, receiving some promises but there are ups and downs in his life on the way to the destination of those promises. And we've also got a chance to reflect on our journey as well. 
and the ups and downs that we experience in life as we trust in God and wait for our salvation, our destination. The context for today's passage is, uh, is really begins back in Genesis with the topic of blessing. We see that God uh, is very happy with his world. He, he's, uh, he's blessed um, his people. He sees that the things he makes are good, very good in fact. In we're told God saw everything that he had made and behold, which is the, way, the Bible's way of saying, look, we're invited into the action. It's very good. And God loves his creation. He's committed to it and he sustains it. He makes people and then we're told that he blesses them. This idea of blessing is a bit of a, a, a tricky idea to get a handle of in some ways. We know it's the opposite of cursing, uh, but what is it exactly? Well, it's God's blessing involves his positive regard for his people. It's his desire to see that they enjoy the truly good things in life. In the garden, they're invited to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the garden and subdue the earth. Uh, and so God's blessing him in that regard, saying we want what's good for people uh, in this special place. But regretfully, we see the next series of chapters involves uh, rebellion and they only experience a limited amount of God's blessing and some measure of God's curse instead. The following chapters, 4 through 11, we see a sustained spread of sin and not much blessing. Cain kills Abel. Lamech comes later and he's not much better than Cain in his violence. Wickedness increases on the earth and God shows that he not only knows how to create a good place, he also knows how to judge and he judges the earth by means of the flood. People still are opposed to God and at the Tower of Babel they decide to make a name for themselves and God judges them by confusing their languages. But now by the time we get to chapter 12, uh, the speed in time of the rapid start of the world and the generations and all these activities starts to slow down and the word focuses on one person and time slows down a bit too. And it's at this point when we come to Abraham we see that the topic of blessings comes up once again. God initiates his blessings to his world and it's by means of Abraham. There will be a blessing. There will be a great nation and a great name, but it won't come from rebellious people trying to make a name for themselves. Instead, it comes from the hand of God. We pick it up in 12 verse 1 and 2, and God speaks to Abraham. God says, Go to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. See, previously the people wanted to make their name great in opposition to God at Babel, but God says, I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. Just as there was blessing back in Eden with regard to a land and a place uh, where they could be fruitful, here's now a moment when God's people have a land and a place where they can be fruitful. And God says to Abraham in verse 3, In you all families on the earth shall be blessed. Well, Scott spoke last week about uh, James Diaz. Is that correct, Scott? James Diaz? James Diaz didn't have a handle on the, 
his team's six-point plan to stop the boats and things like that. And we're supposed to be much better than that. We've got to have a handle on God's three-point plan to bless the world. Uh, and so there it is. Firstly, God's people will become a great nation through Abraham. Secondly, uh, there is a place for God's people called the Promised Land. There is a promise of blessing. God's favour coming to all kinds of people through Abraham. There's God's big plan of blessing for the world. How this blessing comes about is still a bit of a mystery at this point in the story. Uh, in fact, it gets us wanting to turn the pages of the Bible and reading the Bible and Genesis to understand how God does bless the world. But as Christians, we've come to faith in Jesus. Buzzing? Do you want me to just use this lectern mic? Okay, I'll take this one off. I look better now anyway, so that's a, that's a relief for everybody. I need a haircut though. Okay, we know as Christians, since we come to Christ, uh, Jesus hasn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, he's not an Eskimo, as I like to say to the kids at uh, Scripture. He's not an Aborigine per se. He's not Scottish. In fact, Jesus comes from a family, and it's Abraham's family. He's one of Abraham's descendants, and he comes as we know, to bring forgiveness and God's blessing. But at this point in the story, back in Genesis, we're just seeing the seeds of the plan. Uh, we're at the very beginning. If this could be compared to a, a child growing into a man, it's just at embryonic stage, still back in the mum's tummy almost. Abraham's just received the promises of God and he's just begun his journey of faith as well. And his journey is marked by ups and downs. He's already had a downer when he's moved to um, out of Ur and then to Haran. He's moved to the Promised Land. But when he gets there, uh, there's not a lot of rain and there's a famine. And so Abraham goes down to Egypt. So that's his first downer. The second downer is when he's in Egypt, he, he's a bit of a coward, actually. And he offers up his wife to um, Pharaoh and so, says that it's his sister and he puts at risk uh, the promise of descendants. He, he, he risks losing her and he risks losing children that God's already promised. But the upside was that God rescues him. In fact, uh, by the time he comes out of Egypt, he's doing pretty well. He has sheep, oxen, uh, donkeys, servants, and last of all, camels. So we're reminded that God's faithful to his promises to bless Abraham, even though Abraham's got his ups and downs in trusting God. And so by the time we're into chapter 13, we read verse 2 that says, Abraham, uh, or Abraham at that time, had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. So we see something of uh, God's promises finding a bit of fulfilment uh, that he'll become the father of a great nation living in the land. Abraham's journey of trust in God and his promises continue as we see him start to pace throughout the land. He goes from the Negev. He went to the place, from place to place until he came to Bethel, which means house of God, to the place between Bethel and I where his tent had been earlier and where he'd first built his altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. And so whilst it's true that God calls Abraham and takes the initiative uh, and there's no reasons given for God's choice of Abram, 
It is also true that he responds in faith to God and he worships God, which is the right thing to do. In the next instance, we start to see something of the character of Abraham as he puts his trust in the promises of God in chapter 13, 5 to 18. We see that there's a problem. The problem is Abraham is being blessed and, and so is Lot for that matter. And there's rising tension on, on account of that between the, the herdsmen. I'll pick it up in verse 6. But the land couldn't support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And we see something of the good character of Abraham uh, in his faithfulness to Lot, uh, even if it looks like perhaps he's putting at risk the promises of God with respect to the land. He, it seems, takes Lot up into a high place and says to him to look out. We'll pick it up in verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zoar. Now, the plain of the Jordan where, where Lot's looking out uh, is actually, it's a low place, it's below sea level, and the water drains down into that area. There's springs, and the land's fertile because it drains from there and then down into the Dead Sea. And so in the same way that the Nile River cuts through a desert and makes it fertile, well, this kind of area was also fertile. Verse 11, we'll read on. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now, here's a bit of a warning for what's going to follow. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Well, has Abram risked the survival in the land by letting Lot have his choice? Abraham's already risked losing his wife, and children of the promise, is he now risking the land by not taking what seems to be the best of the land? Well, in this situation, it would seem more likely that Abraham's having a good moment of trust in God. For while Lot looks down at the land and the plain, Abraham lifts up his eyes to God. Verse 14 says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north, south, east and west, all the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Well, we've seen that Abraham has mixed responses to God and as we read through Genesis, we're going to see he continues to have uh, ups and downs in his response to God and as he trusts in God. But... The Bible doesn't hide the mistakes of even the great ones. And in some ways, that's a bit of an encouragement to us as well, because we're also on a journey. And sometimes we have high moments of, of solid trust in the Lord and, and godliness and walking his way. And there's other times we, we live regretfully lives which don't bring honour to God and things we do we're, not, we're ashamed of. And so the challenge for us is to think about how we're going with our faithfulness to God, our trust in God, and how we're going with our ups and downs in life 
as we seek to live as his faithful people. It's worth pointing out that we're in a different situation to Abraham. Uh, we're not invited to leave Port Macquarie here and take a trip and fly over to uh, Palestine, as though that's, that's the um, promise that we're holding out for. In fact, the Bible tells us that even Abraham's descendants uh, don't even end up dwelling in that land for, for another 400 years. Ultimately, the New Testament reminds us that the land is just it's a, it's a visual aid. It's a shadow of, a, of an even greater reality of God's kingdom, which Paul speaks about in Romans 8 as being the whole earth which is going to be renewed. That's going to be the dwelling place ultimately for God's people, a renewed earth, which is God's kingdom. And that's the inheritance that we're challenged to wait patiently for. But it's good for us, isn't it, on uh, days like today, to continue to meet regularly, to think about that being our destination, uh, and to remember that although we might be comfortable here in, in degrees, uh, this isn't really our home, ultimate home. Peter, the apostle, picks up on that kind of theme when he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Other translations uh, interpret this aliens and strangers bit as sojourners or exiles. The sojourners, is, they're someone who's not there for very long. They're just sort of in for a while and they're, they're moving on. And so it's emphasising, the Bible emphasises the idea that we're not home yet in the absolute sense. We're still on a journey as we wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled when Jesus returns and when the earth is renewed. And our responsibility at this time is to continue to be faithful, to keep our trust in Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, and to rise to the challenge, as Peter said, to abstain from sinful desires, to put to death sin, to repent from sin, and live lives that bring honour to God. That's our challenge now on the journey. Now, it seems that there are times when we need a bit of encouragement to do this. Uh, just as Lot moved his tents closer to Sodom, he was impacted by the world there. And at times we might be impacted by the world as well. We might be tempted to think about life from the world's point of view and potentially even just drift away from God. That's, that's a, a risk. And so the writer to the Hebrews uh, recognises that. And he challenges God's people. He says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The challenge is on the journey that we don't just drift away from God, that we don't see the world from the world's point of view, but that we hold on to faith in Christ and continue to live godly lives. Well, in the next part of Genesis, we see an upside in Abram's journey of faith as he receives the promises of God. We've got a story of rescue and resistance in Genesis 14. God's already promised that Abraham would be blessed and also be a blessing. And here he becomes a blessing to Lot in chapter 14. Because there is a problem, there's a war. 
Some of the kings in the land have rebelled against some of the, the bigger kings out of the land, and the king of Sodom is one of them. The problem for Abraham is that his nephew Lot's caught up in this conflict. Uh, and so we'll pick it up in verse 11 of chapter 14. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. Verse 12, they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. But by this time we can see that Abram has actually been blessed by God. He's been able to pull together a fighting force. We see that in verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobart, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. And so we take it from this story that, again, here's an experience of Abraham being looked after by God. He's been blessed by God to even have a fighting force and then put it into action to be a blessing to Lot. The king of Sodom wants to offer him some of the, the goods, but Abraham resists that. In verse 23, he says, I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you'll never be able to say, I made Abram rich. It's clear that Abraham wants to make sure it's obvious that he's blessed by God, not the king of Sodom. And Abraham, at this time, shows a commitment to God. He does so by offering uh, a tenth of his wealth to an intriguing character called Melchizedek. Verse 18, we find out that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He's visited Abraham after Abraham's defeated these enemies. Melchizedek was priest of God Mosai, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram recognises that this Melchizedek is also someone who is faithful to God. He worships the same God that he does. And Melchizedek, for his part, states that Abraham has been victorious because of what God's done. God's blessed Abram. He says that in verse 20, And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. He's attributing the victory to God. And so here we see another example of where Abraham has been blessed by God and he's also been a blessing. Now, much can be said about the significance of of Melchizedek. And at this point in the sermon, when people have been listening for a while, it's kind of tricky, isn't it, to start to want to get into another theme. And there's a fair bit that's written about Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. But I just want to sort of simplify things down and probably bring out one main point. And that is, Melchizedek represents someone who 
uh, is a priest king. Uh, we don't really know his beginnings. We're told that he's, he's without beginning or end. And as a priest king, uh, there's a sense in which Jesus stands in that line. And Jesus happens to be the top dog when it comes to priest kings that we need. The reason why this becomes an issue in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, is because some people might have been criticising Jesus as our high priest and saying, well, he's not even from the tribe of Levi, which is where the priests come from. But the writer to the Hebrews is saying that doesn't matter. He's actually from a, from a better tribe, if you like. He's one from the tribe of Melchizedek. And so Jesus is the priest king that we need. I was having a joke with someone earlier comparing it to you know, an Apple computer over the IBMs. You know, he's a, this is even better. But that probably that, that analogy broke down. Anyhow, well, let's, uh, let's do better than that. I'll show you from uh, uh, the writer to the Hebrews what he says about Jesus being a, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the first point is Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi. That doesn't matter. He's from the tribe of Judah. And since he's from the tribe of Judah, the writer of the Hebrews says, he of whom these things are said about Jesus belonged to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we've said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared about Jesus, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now I'm going to skip down to verse 21. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath, when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. In summary, Jesus is a legitimate high priest. He's the perfect high priest who offers the perfect sacrifice of himself. And because he does that, he can save us completely. He hasn't died, he's been raised again, and so he always lives to intercede between us and God, both now and in the future. He doesn't come from the tribe of Levi, but it doesn't matter. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And as such, he is our perfect high priest. Well, when I started this sermon, I spoke about a family that was on the move. They had their ups and downs as they tried to escape from the world's most horrendous volcano. They journeyed through mud, carrying kids uphill and into the forest. 
They left their worldly possessions behind and they had a bit of a journey getting there but the destination made it all worthwhile as they ended up in safety. We've looked at Abraham. He's had a journey too. His journey was based on the promises of God and he was looking for that destination of enjoying God's blessing. His journey had ups and downs in his faithfulness to God. At times he was more faithful than he was at others. But we're also on a journey, friends. Uh, our journey is looking towards a different kind of promised land. That's the, the kingdom of God, or if you like, the, the renewed creation at the end. Uh, and we're looking to the destination of the, the return of the Lord Jesus. The challenge for us in the between time is to continue being faithful to God, not to, not to drift away from the journey, but to, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to be people who are vigilant in the way that we live, to be uh, working at putting to death sin. That's the challenge, not just to live in it, but to put it to death and to live godly lives. May we be those people who continue on the journey, not to drift away from God. Uh, and enjoy the salvation at the end when the Lord Jesus comes. Well, let us pray and ask God to help us on that journey. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we do give you thanks that uh, we can see your promises of blessing right at the start of the Bible. We thank you that they're founded on these promises to Abraham about a place for your people through whom someone comes to bless the whole world. Lord, we thank you that Jesus comes as our perfect high priest who always lives to intercede for us. We thank you that he was such a wonderful high priest, he even sacrificed himself to deal with our sins once for all. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that's in his name and for your blessing and favour. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful people as we uh, wait for salvation to come. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to encourage each other on the Christian journey. Please help none of us to drift away from you, but to stand the test of time as your people. Lord, we give you thanks for this day when we can be encouraged to uh, think about these things from your word. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.